turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Psalm 69. Psalm 69 this evening. From Psalm 69, I prepared a message titled Desperate and Drowning. I have found myself to be desperate and drowning at different times over the course of my life. On occasion, I have been desperately hungry. For whatever reason, I missed a meal or I worked up an appetite and I thought if I would starve to death if I didn't get something to eat right now. At times over the years, I found myself to be drowning financially. More school bills or medical bills than I could afford to pay. I remember times in seminary when I felt overwhelmed, desperate, and drowning by the things that I had to do. There was more to do than time to do it. I wasn't sure I would ever get it done. And then there was a time in my life when I was literally desperate and drowning. And I've told you this story before, but it's such a great story, I've, I've got to tell it again. Back in the day when I was a youth pastor at Chisago Lakes Baptist Church, I was a student here at Central Seminary, uh, Kim and I took our youth group on a missions trip to a church plant among the missionaries to the Mormons in Utah. And one afternoon, at the recommendation of the missionary, mind you, we went up into the mountains to swim in a reservoir there in the afternoon. Kim was eight months pregnant with Micah, and so she stayed on the shore while Yours truly and this group of teenagers, we swam across the reservoir to hike the trails and climb on the rocks. And after some time frolicking about there in the mountains of of Utah, um, being the good husband that I was, I determined to swim back across the reservoir to keep company um, with my wife and let the teens do their thing. What I didn't realize that a a, a storm had had gathered and the wind was blowing through the notch there in in the mountain and across that body of water, creating a strong current. Now, I was young, I was athletic, I am. Um, I was, and, and I was a strong swimmer. In fact, at one time I was certified as a lifeguard, but I was no match for the wind and the current there in that reservoir that day coming through the mountains. And so after some time of making little progress, I began to stroke a little faster, kick a little harder, and for some time, after some more time, I was getting tired. Now, being a lifeguard, I knew that I shouldn't panic I should pace myself and take my time, but um, I was exhausted, and I wasn't reaching the other side. As I was nearing the place, I called out for help, and that was misunderstood. One of the teens that had stayed behind with Kim, she decided to swim out to me. She thought I was calling, hey, come enjoy the, the water. And she swam out toward me, and I said, no, no, you need to turn back. It's not safe. And so she turned to swim back, and she found that she couldn't make it uh, to the shore there, to to the land. And so she panicked and began thrashing and clinging on to me. And we were sure to both drown. Um, Long story short, the hero of the story is my eight-month pregnant wife, Kim, (laughs) who had to come out into the water and pull me onto the beach there, and I was completely in physical shock. I had never been in shock before. I've never been in shock 
since, and uh, my entire body was, was shutting down. I couldn't see clearly, I couldn't hear clearly, I couldn't think. So Kim, the hero of, a, of, of our story, she yells across the reservoir to all the teens, Pastor Matt almost drowned. Now what they heard was Pastor Matt drowned, right? So now we have complete panic and pandemonium among the teenagers on the far side of, of the water. Long story short, after I had collected myself, uh, I had to drive back down the mountain to get some help. I found a park ranger with a boat, explained to him what we were doing, endured his lecture, um, and as he explained to me that every year people drown in this reservoir, we have no business swimming there, um, there are no lifeguards on duty, oh don't worry, I'm a lifeguard, that was no comfort to him <laughs> because I had imperiled these teenagers' um, lives and so he brought his boat and we rescued the stranded teenagers from across the water and of course they immediately got on the phone and called their parents and told them um, that it was not safe to be with me on a mission trip. <laughs> Um, never mind the desperation of maybe one's hunger or their need for money or for physical survival in that moment. Rather think of the times in life when you are so overwhelmed by life that you feel desperate and you feel like you are drowning. Folks, that's the case of David in Psalm 69. If, in fact, if you look at Psalm 69, verse number one, he says, save me, O God. I think that serves as a, as a title for my message, the, the save me, O God, or desperate and drowning. Now, Psalm 69 is attributed to David. You see it there in the, the prescript there. However, we struggle to identify all the circumstances in David's life that resemble all of the detail that is written here in this psalm. We're unable to reconcile each detail and description in the psalm with events in David's life. And so how, how do we answer that if this is a psalm of David? First, one answer is that we don't have a record of all of the events in David's life. And so certainly there may have been experiences or happenings that David experienced that, that we don't know of. The, the second answer is to remember that David wasn't only poetic, but David was also prophetic. And that is, here in Psalm 69, David is pointing forward to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm, like Psalm 2 or Psalm 22 or Psalm 72. How do we know that Psalm 69 points forward to Jesus? Well, because Psalm 69 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament applied to Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, I, I thought of crafting our study this evening in a way that focused strictly on those connections and those fulfillments. If you have a study Bible with cross-references, you will find the New Testament citations and can trace them on your own, or you can use the chart that I've prepared for you there on the back of your notes. You're welcome. And here, this explains to us how that Psalm 69 points us forward to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. However, tonight, for our purposes tonight, I want us to read this Psalm of David as he wrote of his own personal experience. And we might not be able to explain or understand every historic or prophetic reference, but there's certainly enough before us here that we can identify with David's experience, human experience of feeling desperate, feeling drowning, that he's drowning 
in life. Psalm 69 begins, number one, in your notes, with a desperate condition. A desperate condition, like one who is drowning, David says, save me, O God. Verse number one, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into the deep waters where the floods overflow me. Letter A, his fears, his fears. The desperate condition of David, letter A, his fears. Imagine drowning in the sudden crashing water of a tsunami that washes over you in a moment. Or imagine drowning in the slow rising water that comes up to your neck and then covers your mouth and then your nose and your face little by little. What's worse? Each has its own fear. And I confess to you as fatigue set in on me that day in Utah, I became afraid that I wouldn't have the strength to reach the land where my wife and my unborn baby were waiting for me. His fears. Look at verse number three. I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. First, his fears. Secondly, his tears in verse three. In the vernacular, we we might say that we've cried our eyes out. There are no more tears to shed. We might say that we've said all that we can say. Our voice is shot. We've been waiting for rescue so long that we can't keep our eyes open any longer. And folks, there are fears and tears of waiting, and that's the worst. I'm sure you've been there. The desperate condition, his fears, his tears. Look at verse number four. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. A little hyperbole there, perhaps. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. How about letter C, his enemies? his fears, his tears, his enemies in verse 4, and he feels that everyone is against him when he has done nothing wrong. They hate him without cause. Jesus quoted and claimed this very text the night before his crucifixion. In John 15, verse 25, he said, they hated me without cause. That is really the ultimate definition of injustice. Have you ever been falsely accused? Have you ever been charged and sentenced when you've done nothing wrong? And what would make us all lose our minds is the necessary restoring or repaying of something that we didn't take, he says in verse number four. That's just not right. And yet Jesus, the righteous, paid for our unrighteousness, you see. Verse number five. Oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. Letter D, his foolishness. His foolishness. Now when David refers to his foolishness or his folly, if you have the ESV or the the NAS, he isn't trying to minimize what he has done. In fact, he calls his foolishness or his folly, he calls it sin there in verse number five as well. And his point is that his foolishness or his sin is never hidden from God. In fact, the ultimate foolishness in life is thinking that our sin is hidden from God. 
Remember Adam and Eve trying to hide? That was foolish. Remember Achan trying to hide? That is That was foolish, his foolishness. Verse 6, let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. This is letter E, his reproach. And even though David acted foolishly or sinfully at times, the the cause of his problems this time was not his foolishness or his sinfulness. In this case, his suffering reproach was because of his testimony for the Lord. And David's concern is that other people of God would also suffer because of him. And then a further painfulness. David's situation here, the pain is caused by estrangement from his own Siblings, verse number eight, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. That's letter F, his estrangement, verse number eight, his estrangement. All of these things are describing his desperate condition where he feels like he's drowning, estrangement from his family. Who were David's siblings? The, the children of his mother, well, there were the sons of Jesse of, of Bethlehem. First Samuel 17 tells us that Jesse had eight sons. David was the youngest, you remember that. First Chronicles 2 tells us that David had two sisters. Folks, there is nothing more painful than estrangement from family, perhaps a spouse or siblings or children or extended family. And yet, look at verse 9, because zeal for your house has eaten me up. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them, a pejorative. Those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkards as they, they mock me, if you will. This is letter G, his zeal. His zeal, his fears, his tears, his enemies, his foolishness, his reproach, his estrangement, his zeal. David's zeal for God's house. You see it there in verse number nine. Now, what does that mean? Most literally and specifically, it may refer to David's desire to build the temple. He made plans. He raised money. He gathered materials. Of course, because David was a man of war, God reserved the construction of the temple, not for David, but for his son Solomon, who accomplished the building of the temple. But David had a zeal for God's house. More broadly speaking, God's house is the place where God's presence would dwell where God's worship would occur and be offered, where God's name would be proclaimed. Of course, it was Jesus who demonstrated a zeal for God's house when he cleansed the temple in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, Jesus quoted from verse number 9 out of zeal for God's house. And the bottom line is that Jesus demonstrated zeal for God's house. And if we are zealous for God's house, there may be a consequence. It may cause conflict. It may cause conflict in some way, shape, or form. It certainly did for for David. But as for me, David says in verse 13, are you following me? But as for me, verse 13, my prayer is to you. And so, folks, after a a desperate condition, number one, verses 1 through 12, a desperate condition, David then, number two, he gives a desolate cry. 
a desolate cry, number two. And follow as I read verses 13 through 17. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time, O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me and the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire. Let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. He's desperate. He's drowning. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut up its mouth on me. Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies, and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. This is letter A, hear me. Three times he says, hear me, hear me. How many times do we read in the Psalms of the psalmist crying, hear my cry, O God, hear me. Proverbs 15, 29 says that God hears the prayers of the righteous. Jesus said, this is the confidence, I'm sorry, John said in 1 John 5, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. And so in your desperate condition, you go to God with a desolate cry, perhaps all alone, a lone voice, saying, Lord God, hear me, hear my cry. But then verse 18, draw near to me, to, to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. This is help me. Letter A is hear me. Letter B is help me. The desolate cry of the, the psalmist. Now, of course, first, verse 21 is one of those messianic references that jumps off the page at us again. The gospel writers included this very detail in describing Jesus' crucifixion. And there the, the vinegar offered to Jesus for his thirst. But a desolate cry. Of course, we remember the cry of Jesus on the, the cross my God, why have you forsaken me? And perhaps that's a, a sentiment that we feel at times as we're desperate, as we're drowning. We cry out to God, hear me, help me. And yet we feel abandoned. Verse 22, let their table become a snare before them and their well-being become a, a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents for they persecute ones you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. What's, what's happening here? I would call it number three, a damning curse, a damning curse. And folks, verses 22 to 28 here is the language of imprecation. It's an imprecatory prayer for God to judge his enemies because they persecuted the people of God. Now, on the one hand, we love this tough talk. In fact, there are times where we might be inclined to imprecatory prayer. God, smite the wicked. Judge the ungodly. 
righteously rule and reign with a heavy hand. We want God to rise up as the omnipotent sovereign and throw down wrath upon his enemies. On the other hand, at the same time, we get a bit uncomfortable with verse 28. What does verse 28 mean for us? Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. What's going on there as David is praying poetically or prophetically? I'll try to make this as simple as as possible as I understand it in the Bible. The opening of books refers to and speaks of, of judgment. We could look to Daniel 7 or Revelation 20, for examples. In Daniel 7, verse 10, Daniel has a vision of God, the, ancients of, uh, the ancient of days. And God takes his seat in a courtroom, as it were, as the supreme judge. Which, by the way, the name Daniel means God is my judge. And the Bible says that everyone there is seated in the courtroom and the books are opened for judgment. In Revelation 20, verse 12, we read of the final great white throne judgment in which all of the unbelieving dead stand before God and the books are opened. The Bible says that the unbelieving dead are judged according to their works by the things written in the books. Specifically, one of those books was the book of life. And anyone's name not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So what do we do with this imagery? Of course, in the omniscience of God, God doesn't need to write things down to remember the the, the records of things. However, the illustration makes the point, the wicked will not share in God's eternal blessings. And an issue for us in a quick reading of verse 28 here, Psalm 69 verse 28, it might cause us to think that a believer's name can be blotted out of God's book once it's been written in that one could lose their salvation. But I would contend that David here is simply using a figure of speech, a matter of rhetoric that we would call the hypothetical. The hypothetical, it can't happen, it won't happen, David is saying, but I wish it would happen. And how do I know that? Well, we always want to compare Scripture with Scripture, and we always want the clear Scripture to interpret the unclear Scripture. Revelation 3.5 describes the believer and says of the believer, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. And once one is a child of God by faith, the Holy Spirit is that seal or that guarantee of our salvation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, Romans chapter 8. No one can take us from the hand of God, John chapter 10. You say, oh, but what about Revelation 22 verse 19, which says if we take words out of the Bible, God will take our name away. And we would have to get into the deep weeds there. There's a textual variant there. Is it the book of life or is it the tree of life? Is it describing believers or unbelievers? I would contend here in Psalm 69 verse 28, David is praying for the enemies of God to be blotted out from the book of the the living, for their lives to be taken from them, and their, their names not to be recorded among the righteous if God were as it were, keeping an account. But a a damning curse in this imprecation here in these verses. Verse 29. But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. 
I will praise the name of God with a song and magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad, and you who seek God, your heart shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. Let the heavens and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is number four, a definite confidence. A definite confidence. And because David was so sure that God would deliver him, he was able to praise the Lord with thanksgiving. And would you know it, praise and thanksgiving pleases the Lord more than sacrifice. Do you know what's so great about that? If you are humble, verse 32, if you are humble, or if you are poor, verse 33, the poor, or if you are a prisoner, they're also in verse 33. You don't have to find bulls with horns and hooves. You don't have to finance bulls with horns or hooves to to offer a sacrifice. You can simply give praise and thanksgiving. By the way, the, the horns are a reference to the maturity of any animal, of course. Hunting season is upon us. And uh, a hunter wants to, to get that buck with the large rack with multiple points. The horns, a mature animal. The hooves are a reference to the type of animal that was acceptable for sacrifice to God. The split hooves animals are are what the law required according to Leviticus 3. But never mind the bulls with horns and hooves. It's, It's everyone can praise the Lord with confidence, definite confidence in his salvation. Our time is up. What do we do with Psalm 69? It's a Psalm of David, poetically, describing some of his own experience prophetically pointing us forward to Jesus. I I would say we approach it in in, in those ways. We see David crying out to God as one who can save him from his desperate drowning. Save me, O God. That's a great prayer to pray. Secondly, we see Jesus who suffered in the same ways and worse ways while being innocent of any wrongdoing. And ultimately, whether David whether Jesus, whether you or me, we can thank God and praise God for his salvation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the testimony and the witness of David. I thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we see these figures and these shadows, these pictures in Psalm 69, Lord, we recognize that at times we feel desperate, we feel drowned, like we're drowning, we're overwhelmed and And we can do little other than to cry out, Lord, save me. Lord, I pray that you would lift us up, raise us up so that we can praise you. Give us a firm foundation upon which we can stand the foundation that's been laid, um, of course, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.